This morning's reading, uh, we're continuing our walk through the Gospel of John. We're now in John chapter 4. We're going to read a, a fairly long section. What I did this morning was take the sermon that I had written and sort of made it into a running commentary on our text. So this morning, I'll be reading portions of the text, and then uh, I will be... Sorry, we have a couple of people in the waiting room there. So I'll be reading portions of our text and then offering a few words about it as I would during the sermon, uh, then getting back into the text and we'll work our way through the text and uh, through the, the body of the message this morning. So with that, let's begin with these words. May the gift giving love of God, that is his grace, Dwell richly in your hearts, friends of Jesus. Amen. Again, our gospel reading here from John chapter 4, beginning at verse 5. So, he, that is Jesus, came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, that'll be the spot where I'm going to call our first pause and talk about what we're reading here. This reading jumps us ahead a few weeks from where we were last week during Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Yeah, you've got Jesus there explaining to Nicodemus, you've got to come to know the Father. You've got Jesus there explaining, you have to understand baptism, Nicodemus. You have to understand your identity granted to you in the word of God. After doing all that, after this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, between that conversation and this reading that we're looking at this morning, Jesus withdraws from Jerusalem goes toward the Jordan River where his cousin John the Baptist has been baptizing, and Jesus begins baptizing. He carries on this uh, parallel baptism ministry alongside his cousin John. And you get that story told at the end of uh, John chapter 3. Eventually, though, Jesus hears that the Pharisees are making some noise about him, hearing that he's gaining disciples, hearing that he's causing a movement. And so Jesus decides to withdraw. He leaves John doing his baptizing on that side of the Jordan River, and Jesus heads north toward Galilee, which is where he grew up. That's sort of his home base. It's where his disciples are from. And on their way north, you've got Judea in the south, which is where Jerusalem is located, the Jordan River running kind of alongside Judea. North to the very north of Israel is Galilee, where they're headed. Between, there's this region called Samaria. And there's a lot of Bible history tied up in Samaria. To kind of boil it down for you, the people who lived in Samaria were sort of half Jewish. They thought of themselves as Jewish, as we're going to see in this conversation going forward this morning. But most of the Jews of Jesus' time regarded the Samaritans as outsiders, unwelcome, not real Jews. And the Samaritans had some particular customs that didn't help this perception. Regardless, the general status quo was, look, Samaritans, you stay in Samaria. Jews stay in Galilee and Judea, ne'er the twain shall meet. 
And that's what shocks the woman here as we get into this reading. This, this Jewish man, first off, is traveling through Samaria, which is almost unheard of. They would try and take a longer route to avoid that and to have him speaking to her. But there's more at play here, too. We notice it was about noon when this conversation begins. This woman is out here at the well at noon, this hottest hour of the day. She's out alone. Women usually went to the well in groups to draw water to help lift the bucket to keep one another company. This woman is drawing water by herself at this unaccustomed hour. And maybe you already know this story. You know her background. If you don't, we're going to continue reading to find out. So back into our reading, verse 10 there on the screen for you. Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Something here should remind us of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus that we looked at last week. In fact, we see something here that we see throughout the ministry of Jesus. He does not like to answer unhelpful questions. She wants to talk about, hey, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, we don't get along. It's not going to be helpful for Jesus to hash out those old grudges between Samaritans and Jews right now. All throughout the ministry of Jesus, we see that he likes to redirect conversations. Jesus takes conversations to the place they need to go rather than the place his conversation partner might want them to go. Keep watching him do that in this conversation and watch him do that all throughout the stories we read of him in scripture. Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did all his sons and his livestock? Again, see what the woman is trying to do? Jesus is turning the conversation away from this argument she wants to have about Samaritans and Jews, and she's trying to drag it right back there. Jews weren't supposed to consider Samaritans Jewish, but what does this woman say? She calls Jacob, the patriarch of the Jewish nation, Israel himself, her father. She wants to get Jesus angry here. She wants to tick off this Jewish guy who's annoying her while she's trying to get some water at this hour when she will be left alone. She wants to get her water in peace. She wants to head home. So she wants to start a fight because it's going to shut down the conversation. As we meditate on this scripture, maybe we want to ask ourselves that. What could someone say to you in a conversation that would tick you off? What could someone say to you in a conversation that would get right under your skin? And how could the devil use that to keep you from witnessing to that person? Again, we consider that, but then we like to see how Jesus handles this conversation. Back into the text, this is verse 13 now. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus doesn't go after that conversational red flag like a dumb bull. And again, too often, way, way too often, that's exactly what we do, right? And my hand is up in the air on that too. Someone says exactly the thing that is going to take me off track, something that's tailored to give me tunnel vision to keep me from the goal that we as Christians have in every interaction. What is that goal? This is how Paul the Apostle expresses it in Colossians chapter four. Friends, let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. 
Every conversation we have is meant to share God's gifts, his grace with our conversation partner. Sometimes in a conversation, the appropriate gift for us to share is information, something that we can talk about that's going to help that person, right? That's a gift we like to share because often it means we get to talk about ourselves. Sometimes the gift that we are going to share in a conversation, though, is just our attention. That's a harder one for us to share because it means that we don't get to be talking about ourselves, but that is sometimes the appropriate gift to share in a conversation. What Jesus does here, uh, he shares the best gift that you can be shared that can be shared in a conversation with this woman. Uh, he shares himself with her. If you're hearing echoes of baptism here, echoes of that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, echoes of the ministry that he was carrying out alongside John, I think you're right to hear those things. So if Jesus is talking about baptism here, take his words into your thoughts about your baptism. In your baptism, the things Jesus describes here in verse 13 are true. Jesus causes a spring of water to well up in you. Your baptismal identity in Jesus is what bubbles forth every day in your salt-seasoned conversations. Your, your baptism is God's gift to you, this gift by which you're given something that you can share. Verse 15, the woman wants to hear more about this. Back in the text. 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. At this point, uh, I'm not totally sure how to take what the woman says here, and neither are most Bible scholars. Uh, you can sort of read it two ways, and it's not totally clear. One is that she's being sarcastic. Uh, show me then, right? Maybe you're from Missouri or you're aware that Missouri is known as the, the show me state, right? This woman's a little bit of a Missourian. Yeah? Okay. Show me, why don't you? Or the other way to take it is that she's speaking sincerely here. Maybe she thinks that he's talking about some real kind of water. Maybe she senses that there's something more, more at work here, but she's interested is the other way to take this. She's sincere in that interest. Whether she's being sarcastic, whether she's being sincere, again, Jesus redirects this conversation in a way that feels abrupt because he knows this, the point it needs to get to. Back in there, verse 16, this bottom paragraph on the page there in front of you. Jesus told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, whether the woman was being sarcastic or sincere before really does not matter, does it? Now she's just shutting down. You read her reply again, see how curt she's being. I have no husband. She doesn't want to talk about this. She doesn't have to say, I have no husband. She could just go and get the man she's living with. How would this random Jewish man know whether or not she's actually married to that guy? But she deflects. She doesn't want to talk about this. She doesn't want to show this man she's talking to how uncomfortably messy her life is. He already knows. Jesus knows. And he lets her know that he knows in this way that's not cruel, just frank. He just says it. There's no vindictiveness. There's no whip crack in the words of Jesus here. He just names her sin. And if anything, and maybe you pick it up with me as well, there's almost a chuckle here at the end when he says that. What you have just said is quite true. That's not because Jesus 
God is amused by our sin, right? But you almost have to imagine that he's amused by our attempts to conceal sin. Why do we try and conceal sin? God knows. And if he knows, who cares who else knows? Their knowledge really does not matter. It is in our knowledge of God's knowledge of our sin that we can confess what it is that we confess at the beginning of every worship service. And we didn't do it this morning, again, because we're all on Zoom. We wouldn't be able to synchronize like that. But at the beginning of a normal worship service, we start by speaking our sin. We stand up together and confess, I have offended the holy God by what I have done. If you grew up as a Christian, and if you grew up particularly as a Lutheran, you might not have ever considered how profoundly weird it really is to outsiders that we begin worship in this way, where we all stand up and we say that we are sinners who deserve to die. People find that weird, but it's biblical. It's a biblical way to worship. The Apostle Paul says this in his first letter to Timothy. Here is this trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is okay with acknowledging, admitting, frankly, his sin because God knows. And Paul knows that because God knows, it's okay that others know. God knows, so let the mask down. Move past the sinful nature's discomfort with being disrobed. Because that's where this discomfort comes from, talking about our sin. The sinful nature, who does not want to be exposed, who does not want others to be aware. Move past, by the grace of God, the discomfort that we have with others' knowledge of our sin. And see that there's no reason to be made uncomfortable. That sin does not define you. We are not defined, we are not identified with the sins that we confess, rather by the washing we have received. We find identity not in hiding our sins, that we appear outwardly perfect. We find our identity not in our sin itself. We find our identity in the fact that we are washed clean by Jesus. Back into our text, verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. One last attempt to change the topic here, right? And this one should really have gotten Jesus going. There is a right answer to what the woman is asking here. God had ordered that he only be worshipped in one place at the temple in Jerusalem. It was wrong that the Samaritans worshipped God where they did, which was on a place called Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And it's something, again, that's supposed to get Jesus going, get him into a religious argument. He is supposed to tell her, no, you must worship on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, at the temple. That is the right place. And that would be right, and that would be correct. And then the conversation would have ended. So Jesus stays on course. What Jesus says next is uh, so rich, so profound, so full that breaking down these few verses would be a sermon all in of itself. So I just want you to focus on a couple of key ideas as we get into the next words of Jesus, starting at verse 21. All throughout this encounter, you're going to notice we've seen discomfort. The woman comes to the well as a social outcast. She's uncomfortable in polite society. 
Then you've got Jesus' presence, and it's making her more uncomfortable. She didn't want anyone to see her in the first place, and now there's this Jewish man talking to her. And then he goes and names her sin, and we're all made uncomfortable as we think about Jesus standing there in front of us naming our sin. Keep that discomfort dynamic in mind as we read this reply from Jesus, beginning at verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. This woman is lost. She's lost in her personal life and in her spiritual life. She has no idea how to live life, and she doesn't know what she needs to know about God. She and Nicodemus really are the same. We saw Nicodemus last week, this, this uprightly, outwardly moral Pharisee, a moral exemplar of a man, prestigious and respected, who did not know God, who did not know his father, who needed to be introduced to his father in baptism. That prestigious and respected Pharisee and this fornicating multiple divorcee, they're the same. Neither of them knows the God that they think they worship. So Jesus promises to this woman truth. Why do you think the woman's last five relationships ended? Why is she not really committing to the man that she's currently with? You think maybe she might have some trust issues at this point? Do you think maybe she's been lied to, hurt, misled? Do you think part of her discomfort stems from the fact that she feels this profound loss regarding her identity, her place in the world? Jesus promises truth to her. Jesus promises that what she previously has worshipped without understanding, she will now come to know. Jesus comforts her. Back in the text, the woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. This is what she's always wanted. She has wanted truth. She has wanted things to be explained to her. She has wanted to be able to truly know something to be true and real. Is there some particular promise of God, some particular way the gospel is phrased? in scripture that resonates with you. Let me explain what I mean. God uses various pictures in the Bible, various words and terms to explain his love, his salvation. One of them is the wedding. That might be my favorite picture. God pictures salvation, heaven in terms of a marriage, this bringing together, this relationship newly created that will become greater than the sum of its parts, right? That's what a marriage is. Maybe. The picture that clicks for you is family, right? Another way that God uses to describe the gospel. God speaks of us as his children. We are his, chi- we are his children. His, uh, we are brothers and sisters. He is our father. His love for us, our love for one another is based not on what we do, but on who we are in him. Maybe that picture really clicks for you, expresses the gospel beautifully in a way that you enjoy. Maybe baptism itself is a picture that speaks beautifully to you. The washing away of your sin, the thought that you now stand before God clean and pure, white as the snow we just got this weekend, right? 
this Samaritan woman doesn't really know her Bible that well. She doesn't know everything about the God she worships, but she knows from what she's read that there is a savior coming who's going to tell her the truth. That's the picture that stuck to her heart. Through five marriages, through social rejection, through this hard life that she's living in a hard place, she was clinging to the hope that God had given her that someday there was going to be someone who would come to her and speak truth. Verse 26, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. How could you even react when your most heartfelt desire is actually realized, is standing in front of you, smiling at you? Well, here's what the woman does. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. What a crazy thing it is that she's ready to tell everyone. This guy knows what I did. You know what? So do we, honey. We know you. That's why she's a social outcast. That's why her name is bandied about town. They know what she's done. But this man knows and he still loves her. This is her uncomfortably gracious God. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. I want you to try something this week. Think about your own sin. Think about the things that you hide that make you uncomfortable in front of other people and in front of God himself. And then remember that God knows about those things already. Then put yourself in the crowd of people sitting there at Jesus' feet for two days. Come to the understanding to which they came. Understand that God has not come to the world to take from us, to demand that he's come to recreate, to give, to save, to be the savior of the world. All of this described there came out of one profoundly uncomfortable interaction, right? Sin being exposed, a conversation with the potential for an argument, an unsafe interaction. That's how God works. He is the God of uncomfortable grace. He doesn't give the gifts that we think we want. He doesn't avoid the conversations we want avoided. He speaks to our needs. He gives us the gifts that fulfill them. And we will only ever share his name by seeing that he has moved us past discomfort. He knows our sin and he loves us. He knows all sin and he came to save you. The final verse, 43. After those two days, he left for Galilee. Our uncomfortably gracious God is back on the move. We're going to keep walking with him. Amen.